In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a great Latin theological phrase, and I know I'm going to lose you already by talking about Latin theological phrases here, Uh, but the phrase is incurvatus se. It's a phrase that Martin Luther liked to use especially, incurvatus se. And incurvatus se means curved inward on one's self. It's speaking of what happens to our hearts when they are caught in sin. Rather than our hearts being directed to love God and to love our neighbors as they were created to do, our hearts corrupted by sin exalt themselves. In our sinful nature, we love to break that first commandment, that first commandment that says we are to have no other gods. It says that we are to fear, love, and trust God above all things. We, however, in our sinfulness are always tempted to love ourselves above all things. We love those things which we believe exalt us in this life. We are idolaters, but our first and biggest idol is always us. We love that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. The parable Jesus tells in our gospel is an illustration of this. A man comes to Jesus from out of the crowd and wants Jesus to judge a dispute about an inheritance he has with his brother. Now, this man probably thinks he's being clever. He probably thinks that Jesus will condemn the brother for being greedy and not sharing. Jesus, however, turns it around and challenges the man to examine his own heart. Of course, the Gospels tell us that Jesus knew the thoughts of the hearts of those around him. He knew what this man was really thinking. And he knew what this man was thinking wasn't really about fairness or justice. This man was thinking with his own greed his own selfishness. And so our parable here sometimes gets taken as a blanket condemnation of money or wealth, but that's not it. Jesus is not saying that all rich people and all people who have a big savings account are bad. That's a little too easy. We see that Jesus throughout the Gospels is able to welcome those with money just as he does with those who have nothing. What Jesus wants us to recognize however, is that all of us, rich, poor, whatever state we're in, that our hearts have a sin problem. Just as the man who came to, judge this, came to Jesus to judge the dispute about inheritance really has a heart problem here because he wants more and more, our hearts also try to use the things of this world to build us up in our own idolatry of ourselves. Our hearts can be greedy. It can be selfish. And this is what we see in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. Notice how the rich man acts throughout this parable. The rich man speaks to himself. He uses his abundance to build more and more for himself. And then the man becomes a kind of preacher to himself. In fact, we're told that he speaks to his own soul. And that's an interesting detail. Right, Because what should speak to our soul? Well, it's God's word that should speak to our soul. The law of the word of God should convict our soul, and the gospel of the word should comfort our soul. But where we get in trouble is when we try to comfort our souls with our own thoughts and our own reasonings. And that's what the rich man does. He does not use God's word to speak to his soul. He uses his very own covetous, sinful heart. And so he tells his soul, relax, eat, 
drink, be merry. In other words, he is telling his soul, you are safe. You have nothing to worry about. Live it up. He's placing his hope not in God, but he's placing hope in what he has stored up for himself in the barns that get bigger and bigger. And some people get confused by this parable because they don't exactly see the problem with the rich man's business plan. He stores up and he saves. Right? That's what any wise steward, any wise business person would do. That's what many of us strive to do. We try to put money into our 401ks and our savings account. We understand that to be wise. However, we first and foremost must always check our hearts. Right? We must be reminded of ourselves that that fully funded 401k is not our savior. The savings account that we hold on to should never be our real source of hope. And if it is, then we're deluding ourselves with a kind of false god. And so the rich fool in this story has become kind of his own god. He has made himself his own comfort. He has made himself his own security in this world and how he loves himself. Here he is speaking to himself, building up for himself. There's no mention of others, no mention of sharing his wealth, no mention of taking care of others, no mention of family, no mention of children. His whole life is curved in on itself. It's all about himself. He has made himself an idol, a kind of God. And I think it's a scene that we know well. We know it from literature and from culture. We know that Scrooge character who has built up all kinds of wealth for himself only to live on a kind of island. You very likely know people who have built up wealth for themselves and now they're alone and they try to delude themselves that their wealth, their big house or whatever it is will make them happy. But we want to be very careful here and not just think of this as a condemnation of rich people because it's not just a rich person problem. Jesus' point is that all kinds of greed are problematic because all kinds of greed feed into our inwardly curved hearts. There's no end to worldly things that will feed into our, our idolatry. We might find that we put our hope not in the money we have, but in the power or influence we have. We might live above all else for the praise we receive from others. We might tell our souls to relax because of our educational status, because of our employment status, because of what we have accomplished in our life. It might be the feeling of security we get from all the energy we put into being healthy. It's hard to know exactly what precisely our sinful hearts will cling to, but unquestionably, our hearts will look for ways to exalt ourselves. Our hearts are like factories of idols. They will constantly look for ways to love, fear, and trust something other than the Lord who made us. One way to think about this is that when we have made ourselves idols, we live as practical atheists. We live without consideration of God. Whether or not you say that you believe in God is immaterial if you live as if there is no God. Practical atheism lives as if God's existence is irrelevant to your life. We're tempted to replace God as the central understanding of our lives with the things of this world. It's a lack of that biblical phrase, the fear of God. And so in the parable, the rich fool, more than anything else, is a picture of a practical atheist. 
He lives as if God is irrelevant. He believes that he controls his own future. He has all the security he needs. He can disregard all things because he has an abundance of wealth. He's living without the fear of God. And most people we meet in our day-to-day lives are going to be practical atheists. How many people do we meet who say they have made one decision or another because that's what God's word has directed them to do? How many people do we meet who live and make decisions knowing that they're going to die and spend eternity somewhere? Very few people are going to think like that. At Bible study a couple weeks ago, we had a brief discussion about near-death experiences. And so near-death experiences can be kind of all over the place, and it's hard to make any kind of blanket generalization about what people see and feel in those moments. But as we talked, it was clear that Almost universally, people who have those experiences walk away knowing that they cannot live any longer as practical atheists. They come away realizing that there's a greater organizing principle to their life than living just for themselves. There will be a day when all of us will pass from this life into the next. We don't know what that day will be. The rich man in the parable As we see, he had no idea that his life was going to be demanded of him. And the rich man in the parable in that night had nothing to point to except what he had stored up in his big barns. He was rich in things, but poor in the things of God. And when he died, those barns full of grain made absolutely no difference. Intuitively, we all know that this is true. We know that we can't take our material wealth into eternity. We know that our savings account matters not to God. And the parable is challenging us then to always be examining our hearts, to ask ourselves, where is our hope? What are we going to take in the life to come? The answer to that question then is found in the final verse of the parable. Those who store up for themselves are going to be in trouble, but those who are rich toward God will be rich in the life to come. But where do those riches come from? How are we rich toward God? Well, St. Paul answers that question for us in our readings from Colossians. He writes, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. St. Paul says that your confidence is in Christ himself. He says Christ is our life and that our lives are hidden in him. And notice how that cuts against all idolatry. Our lives are found in Christ. They're not found in what we do. Our lives are not found and defined by what we store up. They're not defined in the esteem we have in this world. Our lives are truly found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the hope that you have to be rich toward God. Because Jesus Christ has lived that sinless life for you, and he died to take the consequences of sin for you. He overcame death and was raised on the third day to give you victory over sin and death. And so Christ alone is where our hope is found. Christ alone makes us rich towards God. And so we're called, as St. Paul says, to put to death 
whatever is earthly in us. And that doesn't mean retreat from the world. Instead, he means there is no reason for us to put our hope in the things of this world because those things will not save you. Think about how freeing and liberating that is. You don't have to store up in great barns to live a good and meaningful life. You don't have to be someone great by worldly standards to have the promise of a joyful eternity. All you need is Christ. All you need is Christ, and Christ is a free gift for you. When you put your trust in him, and you let all else fall where it may, then, and only then, are you rich towards God. Amen.